on the property experience, our hosts Zarko Jokic and Anna Porter will take you behind the curtain of the property market Australia-wide. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Property Experience Podcast. And as with all editions of the Property Experience Podcast, today is all about giving you the smartest intelligence and knowledge we can. And like all episodes, I am joined here today with my co-host, Anna Porter from Suburbanite. Hello, Anna. Thanks for having me again. And our special guest today is David Quizzoli from Q Loans. Hello, David. Hey, Zarko. Hello, Anna. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. Now, today our topic is all about self-employed loans. So let's start with brass tacks. David, from a lending point of view, how are self-employed people defined? So... I'll rephrase that. What does a lender believe a self-employed person looks like? What's a self-employed lender to a, a bank or a building society? Right. Yeah, fundamentally, uh, it means that we're not actually dealing with anything more than an ABN number is how it really works. So okay. an ABN number is the most important part of self-employed borrowing. Mm. Um and uh, therefore, behind that ABN rests various forms of borrowers. They could be a person as a sole trader. Yep. It could be a company. Mm. Or it could be a company that's trustee of a trust. Are the three common ways that we see how ABNs are structured. So if someone's a contractor, they might be classed as a self-employed borrower from a lender's point of view. Absolutely. The, wow. the, the main thing is driven by the fact that they are issuing invoices with their ABN number and receiving okay. income based on those invoices. And our contract is often surprised by that, that they're treated as a self-employed borrower when it comes to borrow funds. That is true because they see themselves perhaps in a almost like a uh, quasi-wage relationship with the, the, uh, their main customer that they might mm. be working with and therefore there could be some confusion about how that lies with them in terms of where they're receiving their income. Yeah, because from a HR point of view, I'm sure the company likes to say, oh, our contract is a part of the family here. We treat you as we would any employee or part of our organisation. But when they come to borrow money, they're treated as a self-employed borrower and sometimes that can be a bit of a shock. So... How do lenders treat self-employed borrowers? Are they treated any different, David? To, uh, and the answer is absolutely, they're treated very differently. And and as it as it turns out, self-employed borrowers in, in fact have can capture more options than what normal PAYG or wage earners can. And why I say that is that in any type of home lending, whether it's if you're a wage earner or with a self-employed borrower, it all boils down to your income. Okay. The income and how it's verified are the two things that are uh, that banks will focus on as part of their responsible lending obligations. And the way that income can be uh, demonstrated or verified is your hierarchy at the top of the tree is by your tax returns, which yes. is the most common way. And then the second level below that is usually BAS statements, okay. which confirms your revenue and some expenses that appear on your BAS lodgements. And of course, your bank statements is a third way that you can verify your income because clearly business income has to land in a bank account and that's where some, some lenders will actually attribute their focus in terms of the affordability question. On, on previous episodes, we've talked about rate for risk and you mentioned the three hierarchies of verification of income. Is one given more of a benefit than the others? Is there one where 
well, if you give us these documents, we'll give you a better structure or better rate. Does that play out like that, David? Too true, Zarko. How it works is based on the same hierarchy that I went through. The uh, At the top of the tree, of, based on tax returns, usually you can attract the lowest interest rate and the lowest fees. And as you go down the hierarchy now to bass lodgements and to bank statements, then you will expect to pay a higher interest rate and higher fees depending on your circumstances in, the, in, the, in that equation. In terms of the options available to a self-employed borrower, are they any different to a non-self-employed borrower? Yes, good question. That's that's too, that's uh, that's uh, um, vindicated by the fact that most um, wage earners would be attracting money from tier one lenders or banks, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, tier one banks include all the majors and the minor banks. I would include include co-ops and building societies that have yes. formed into banks over the many years, yeah. and then you've got a, a tier two level, which are. I suppose you can call them mainly called as mortgage managers. Okay. And these are uh, these are institutions, privately owned uh, businesses in the main, which uh, holds, uh, attract wholesale funding from all the various banks that are, exist in the marketplace, and they repackage them. And in fact, it's almost like white labelling a product that you see on Woolworths shelves. Yeah. Uh, similar style where white labelling of loan products into uh, these mortgage managers can create very many options for self-employed borrowers, which allows income verification based on vast lodgements and bank statements. And is it just par for the course that some lenders get self-employed borrowers and some don't? Or have they made a decision that really we want to focus on this area, not that area? What's the sort of, your understanding of the basis behind those sort of commercial decisions? Yeah, that, I think that's uh, that. You're on the right track there, Zarko. In terms of that, different institutions have a sweet spot, a different sweet spot okay. that they want to focus on, and yeah. that could be based on the heritage and their and their and their skill sets that are that they can bring to the table in terms of lending money, and therefore you get some specialisations in tier two lending in particular, which uh, create these new opportunities for self-employed borrowers to attract money which they otherwise wouldn't be able to attract from tier one lenders. If I'm a self-employed person and I've got a, a couple of good-looking BAS statements, so BAS being our top-line revenue, mm. our income coming into the business, but I'm still running my business maybe not at a profit or at a loss, can I still borrow money under that sort of structure? Look, depending on the, the financial institution you're going to, the, the way they will look at your revenue uh, and expenses on your BAS lodgements is very different to how other banks will look at your tax returns. So ultimately, the answer is yes, absolutely. You can increase your borrowing capacity by looking at the BAS lodgements, which allow different financial institutions to do different calculations based on those lodgements. Right. So is there a responsibility on the broker, on the borrower, on the lender in any other way to ensure there's an affordability for the loan, that there's an ability to repay it. If I'm running a business at a loss, how how does it come out in the wash that I can actually afford that loan? Very good question, and often many borrowers ask me that same question too. So the responsible guideline, lending guidelines that are set out uh, by ASIC uh, do determine that fact that you need to uh, be need to verify income and expenses and satisfy yourself in terms of affordability. So bass lodgements actually provide different types of. Uh, information that can be used successfully by these financial institutions. Your BAS lodgements tell you your revenue, tells you your expenses, it also tells you your wage bill as well. And from that, different lenders then construct their own calculation, their their own algorithm, if I can call it that, 
where they will then subject that type of information through their algorithm to determine loan affordability. And things like um, what they will look, look at include things like uh, what is the expected profit for your industry. If I was a cafe owner mm. presenting uh, bass lodgements, then the net amount that come, appears on your bass lodgements, most of these uh, tier two lenders have particular guidelines that they, maximum profit guidelines that they use internally to determine the loan affordability. And then ultimately is living expenses as well. So your personal living expenses need to be verified by the broker as well as the lender, depending on their needs there too. There's a lot of industries that inherently are known for taking cash payments, mm. be it legitimate or not legitimate. That's another debate for another podcast. Just the nature of their business, yeah. Mm. Yeah, they mm. take in a fair bit of cash. I'm sure not all of it falls into the bank accounts. So is this the sort of um, loan that an industry or a professional that does tend to deal in a lot of cash may look for a loan of this nature because they can kind of, between the lines, factor that in in a way. Yeah, that is true. That uh, does attract the, 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 uh, that type of uh, self-employed um, business that has an activity that is cash-driven. And it may not be driven by that. It's, it can be driven by the fact that most good uh, uh, accountants are very good about uh, legitimate, legitimately minimising tax for their for their clients. Mm. So therefore, the way the tax returns are structured can be very different to what is actually hitting the bank statements well, as well. I use low doc loans all the time out of pure mm. convenience. It's solution based lending. You know, I've got an occupational hazard where I find good investment properties all the time. But I don't have my accounts always up to date or presented in a way that the mainstream lenders would want to see. So the accountant might have been particularly creative. Um, year, not that I'm saying that about my accountant. For anyone who knows him, he's actually not. He's very straight down the line. <laughs> so everything's legit. Mm. But also, like in years gone by, when we've put extra money into super. Some lenders will use that as an ad back. At times, other lenders have not. Mm -hmm. So we've, you know, um, come, not unstuck, but come up against challenges there at times. So we've used, you know buy a property, you've got 30 days to put a deal together, mm. you don't have your finances where the banks want it, you might need to use that low doc option to get it together quickly mm -hmm. and then maybe at end of financial year, which is what I tend to do, come back around, work with the accountant, work with the lender, work with the broker, get the numbers where they need to be to go to the mainstream lenders to potentially get a better rate or a better structure on your loan. Correct. So that's been a great solution for me as a business owner. Yeah, it's, it's a strategy that a lot of self-employed borrowers uh, do employ, need to employ, where they see it as a stepping stone to pay that slightly higher rate or fees for a tier two loan based on your bass lodgements is a is a temporary holding pattern until tax returns are lodged. So often a lot of self-employed borrowers find that they ha aren't, haven't lodged their tax returns in time for a loan application and hence the bank statements and the bass lodgements can be a, a surrogate for the income verification as well. So it's really about what is the best available option right now based on your situation right now. Yeah, correct. I mean, people can't time their property purchases based no. on when their tax returns are, no, are, can't. are no. actually lodged. So that's where low-doc uh, lending was driven by going back probably 25 to 30 years ago yes. when these uh, different, type, this different type of Tier 2 lending came to the market. So you're not a Rams broker, but no, I not. do want to get your opinion, and I know you have to probably be somewhat diplomatic about this, but Rams sure. were known for low-doc mm. loans. Yep. And then they pulled out of the market on that. So effectively, all the poor Rams brokers, it's like having a gyms mowing and being told, but you can't use a lawnmower. Where do Rams sit in the marketplace now compared to other low-doc products and, and what they've always traditionally been known for? Mm. Where, where, do they exist anymore? Is it Are they a thing? 
that, that's a good question. Rams is, has been around since Jesus was a boy. It's true in low dock lending, and uh, they were well known in that market. Um, Rams is not on my panels. I actually don't have any uh, hard data to compare against Rams uh, rates and fees versus the the, the rest. Um, but what I will say is that I think Rams, the competition is caught up with Rams in terms of there's me- compared to five years ago, I'd say there'd be double the amount of mm. uh, loan options that are available from different mortgage managers that would be providing this competition uh, with Rams as well. So let's have a look mm. at your business, um, David. You and your team at Q Loans run a very successful practice there. How many of your clients are self-employed, roughly? Oh, I, I can tell you exactly. It's 88% are self-employed. So 88% of your clients are self-employed. And why do they choose you and the team at Q Loans? Oh, look, I think that's driven probably the nature of my referral arrangements that come through accounting firms okay. in the main. Yeah. And accounting firms in the main have self-employed clients that they need mm. to provide their valuable advice to in terms of tax planning. Okay, so, so the accountant gives them the, all this tax advice. And as we talked about earlier in this episode, tax minimisation is a national sport here in Australia. <laughs> we would be on the podium at any international meet in tax minimisation. That I know for sure. So your clients come from the accounting referral referral um, channel, mm-hmm. they land um, in front of you as a referral and now the discussion starts in terms of how do we get your situation lender ready? Mm. What's that process look like with some of your clients? How do you get your self-employed mm. clients lender ready? Yeah, that's a good question. It's making them uh, uh, ready for hitting the market is, mm. is, is probably 50% of my job. Uh you, you reach, yeah, I suppose you speak to a lot of self-employed borrowers that sometimes come from uh, a position of naivety about the expectations in the marketplace and therefore it can be a rude shock to them about some of the things that they have to consider when they go, start to r- assemble themselves to uh, be able to borrow directly from the market at the right rates. So naive about the lending process? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I often talk absolutely. about people still think getting yeah. a home loan is like going to the ATM. No. <laughs> I've given you these details, where's my money? Exactly. And it really depends on what context and what situation they're coming from. So mm. once you've almost, not burst their bubble, David, but once mm. you've actually given them a roadmap of what reality looks like, what happens next? Then it becomes information gatherings time. Okay. And, and that's critical really early in the preliminary assessment of any borrower's capability to borrow money in the marketplace. Yes. And I suppose through my close relationships, through my accountants that are referred those loans in the first place, access to that information is, 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 uh, is, is readily available. Mm. So you've got... Uh, and understand where they want to get get to. You've understand got an understanding where they've come from in terms of their documentation and what financials they've got. And then how do you deal with that process in putting that case to the lender? Because presentation of their uh, application, presentation of the structure, I'm, I understand is vital when it comes to self employed lending. Mm. The that that's that's. Too true, and the, and the part that part the answer to that is your the level of your planning, and that what I mean by that is any good broker should have access to them to access to the, all the tools that they should have be available for the policies and procedures for any of the financial institutions you deal with. Mm. So understanding those policies, and there are nuances between every second tier lender and even first tier lenders that good mortgage brokers need to understand, and therefore. You don't. Uh, you're not wasting the time of your client and yourself by uh, spinning your wheels down a path where, if where if you knew that policies and procedures, 
uh, did not allow that loan borrowing to uh, proceed with that particular lender, then you'd be focusing on those two or three that should be. Yeah, we've, we've seen that in the marketplace. A lot of borrowers have come to finance and mortgage brokers because they've gone down traditional pathways. Mm. And by traditional, I mean more than 20 years old, where they've gone to a, a, a major lender, they're self-employed now, and they've not been treated the way they expected to be treated. And I don't mean they've been treated rudely, but in terms of their needs haven't been met. And they've been shocked by that. They're saying, what, you're telling me, me, I've been banking here for X amount of years and you won't give me the same um, lending options as you would someone else. And then they're disappointed. They get over the disappointment and they come to a broker and they get those options laid out in full. Do a lot of your clients come down that pathway that aren't referred by an account that actually have been said, told, no, you can't do this. And then they come to you and you give them the options. Oh, look. Zarko, that's it's probably eighty percent of the people that come to wow. me are in that category. We've yes. had that bad experience uh, with a, a, a tier one lender, mm. um, and have been and I've pro- probably have been spending way too much time with that tier one lender, hoping and praying it would work out. Yeah, and it doesn't. So square peg, round hole. Like I've always banked here. Let's make it yeah. work. Whereas they really should have cut to the chase and went to a professional like you in the first place. Yeah, that's why we exist. And, yes. and we love to hear those stories as a mortgage broker because <laughs> that, that creates our, our, our work in progress, that's for sure. Yeah. And so so then you go, you take them through that pathway, you've understood where they want to get to, you've got the verification of the documents, you're putting the case together with the lender. Mm. How is it dealing with the lender in terms of their structure? And what I mean by that is how is the structure of the business important when it comes to lending? You rattled off before the different tiers, the sole trader, the company, the trusts. How are they treated differently by the lender? Uh, Good question. That that does differ from lender to lender. Particularly trust can be a dirty word with a lot of, uh, with a a number of tier one lenders. Okay. Uh, And I suppose if you look at where the ATO's attitudes in terms of dealing with corporate structures as well, they prefer company structures in a mm. lot of business relationships in terms of making sure that that tax uh, um, share is is, uh, is properly delivered to the ATO. Yes. So in my experiences, the same hierarchy where company is preferred by the ATO, second to sole, sole trader, third trust, yeah. is pretty much the same with the banking. With the lenders, okay. Lenders. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So Interesting. if you're a, a young bloke for argument's sake and I get asked this a lot by people thinking about starting your own business you're currently employed you've got mm. a salary and you said and people say to me this all the time I say this year I'm going to start my own business or I'm going to go out as a contractor and earn more money and I also want to buy my first property mm. <laughs> what would you say to that person oh that story I get that story not every day of the week but it happens more times than I'd like yeah and, and simply unfortunately um, the expectation that as soon as you go from earning a wage and opening up an ABN for the first time, uh, the expectation is I can borrow money straight away based on my backup salary if my business fails. Um, that's not the case with lenders. Usually they want to see two years minimum ABN registration for GST. Okay. Um, and earning decent revenue under that ABN, I'd imagine, too. Correct, to get the maximum borrowing You can't power. take eight months just to kick it off, right, and, and expect the bank to lend you money. Unless you've got a fantastic business model, yes, that's the, that's the, the harsh reality. Yeah. So would that young bloke, for example, that, that asked that question, would he or she be best to think about maybe getting the property first while they've got the, the, the wage to back it 
before they step into that business or ABN structure, as long as they know that when they take that leap, they've got the affordability to maintain the debt. Would that be probably a better way to do it, that that sort of uh, process? Certainly. I mean, the whole thing, in terms of an income verification uh, question, that's the only way you could do it. That's that's the that's the real answer. So buy the property before you go out and start the business if you if you want to do both. Correct, and um, and making sure that uh, that that the that uh, the the trick there is of course as well that you are under responsibility to disclose any fundamental changes in your circumstances that you expect to happen uh, mm. in the future. Mm. So sometimes it's a fine line you got to you're a fine tightrope you walk on that mm. in terms of your timing and when you do that acquisition. Right. Yeah, so you've got to be got to be careful about that type Maybe of strategy. Maybe work part-time for a little bit as you start the business just to find – so you find that balance where one income supplements the other effectively. Could be, but, you know, again, the, the Tier 2 lenders, there, there are options where even a, a, an ABN that's only been around for three months is enough for an assessment for income verification for a couple of these Tier 2 lenders. Yeah. And if you're prepared to pay that higher interest rate, and you will pay uh, a higher interest rate, instead of 2%, you might pay 4%. So it's double the interest rate. But it's a temporary holding pattern until you get to the stage when you have two years of track record behind you and then you can look forward to transferring over to Tier 1 lender, as you mentioned before, Anna. Yeah. It comes down to that algorithm that David mentioned before. Lenders have that data to make a prediction on future performance. So if you're coming from a certain industry where there's a strong chance of the three months income that you've got verification of, being maintained for the next 18 months, they'll happily treat that as a good evidence of the next two years. Whereas if you are in a high-risk industry where the chances of success aren't very good, they might actually say, well, we need we need another three months or another, another three months or a full 12 months. So it's, again, it comes down to that rate for risk. And also circumstance. Mm. I mean, if you've gone from working for a company for eight years – and then you become a contractor and are continuing a contract with that company who you know have another eight years of business for you. They're just mm. restructuring how Absolutely, they do that. Absolutely, yes. There's very little risk there, isn't there? Especially when you know you're going to earn the same, if not slightly more, to Correct. do that. Quite common, especially in um, some of the uh, aviation industries, transport industries being like that, IT's been like that, construction, as you say, yes. Yeah, correct. And uh, tier two lenders get that a lot better than tier one lenders. Yeah. That's, that's the... That's the uh, the opportunity that's available for self-employed borrowers to know that there are those options available. Is that because the credit guy has a box where he can make extra comments at the bottom of the tier two lender form? <laughs> yeah, it's that not as just well. the ticks. Oh, but it's, <laughs> it's probably more than that. You have almost as a broker, you you have a direct line to these uh, to these credit decision makers as well, which you that's don't really get the same opportunity yeah. with tier one lenders. That's get, pretty big. Mm, it is. That's that's paramount. As a broker, you're trying to as fast as as fast as you can get your facts straight and then find those two or three or four best options to present to your customer, then they can make their decision and choose themselves what the best options is for them. So it's about the holistic approach, the common sense approach, looking at the full application, not just a computer says no, Correct. algorithm <laughs> talk sort of thing. God now, save us, that's right. I yeah. have one more very important question, but do you have anything else to ask, Zarko, before I ask my favourite question? One thing I do want to ask, David, is what do you wish more self-employed borrowers knew before they started the lending process? Oh, his question might be better than mine. That's a good one. <laughs> oh, look, that's a simple answer. Um, it's all in the income. Mm. It's not the fact that you might be only borrowing $50,000 on a $5 million property. Even to borrow $1, you've got to have an income verification strategy. Mm. 
that's the, that's the thing that lots of self-employed borrowers don't get up front. So if you're not working, you take that $5 million property and rent it out and live with mum and dad for a little while. There you go. Now <laughs> you've got some income. Get some crea- get, get creative with this. <laughs> that's it. So my question for you, um, you would see a, a lot of property investment strategies floating through your office and, and across your desk from development projects to buy and renovate to rent vesting, holding, commercial, mm-hmm. residential, you name it. Mm. What strategies do you like for property investment? What what is it, what do you think works well or, or is an oh. interesting strategy that you've seen? Look, um, I think the answer to that is depends on your stage of life. If you look at my stage of life um, and when I'm hoping to retire in the next 10 years, for me, positive yield is so, so important. Mm. So capital gain is not that important to me right now in, in property investing that we're looking at to do. But go 20 years back, 20 years prior then I think capital gain would have been a bigger driver for me, where the benefits of negative gearing can be brought to bear as well, where borrowing uh, a higher on your investment loan and reducing your home loan as much as as quickly as possible um, is the right strategy at a a younger age of life. You know, I only thought you were 29. There you go. Thanks for that. I've got chill food too, (laughs) and I'll I'll direct you to a guide dog's Australia. (laughs) Very good, very good. Well, the Property Experience Podcast is all about surrounding you with the best possible information, best possible knowledge, and today has been no different. We really recommend if you are a self-employed borrower, if you are someone whose income is defined as self-employed, reach out to a professional like David and also reach out to other information channels you have like your local chamber of commerce. I know David is an active member of his local chamber of commerce. If you are a self-employed person, your chamber of commerce is there to help you navigate this platform. But as are all of the mortgage brokers who specialize in self-employed borrowers like yourself, reach out, surround yourself with smart people, get smart people on your team and enjoy the property experience. Thank you very much, David, for joining us today. Thank you, Zarko. Thank you, Anna. Welcome. And that's a wrap for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us on another episode of The Property Experience. Stay tuned for more great content.